Support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per-pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment, combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Demis Hassabis, the CEO of Google DeepMind. That's the newly created division of Google responsible for AI efforts across the company. Google DeepMind is the result of what you might call an internal merger. Google acquired Demis's DeepMind startup in 2014 and ran it as a separate company inside of its parent organization, Alphabet, while Google itself had an AI team called Google Brain. Google's been showing off AI demos from both groups for years now, but with the explosion of ChatGPT and a renewed threat from Microsoft in search, Google and Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai made the decision to bring DeepMind into Google itself earlier this year, creating Google DeepMind. What's interesting is that Google Brain and DeepMind were not necessarily compatible or even focused on the same things. DeepMind was famous for applying AI to things like games and protein folding simulations. The AI that beat world champions at Go, the ancient board game? Yeah, that was DeepMind's AlphaGo. Meanwhile, Google Brain was more focused on what's come to be the familiar generative AI toolset. Large language models for chatbots, editing features in Google Photos, and so on. So this was a big structure decision with the goal of being more competitive and faster to market with AI products, but Demis had to manage a culture clash between two very different organizations. And the competition isn't just OpenAI and Microsoft. You might have seen a memo from a Google engineer floating around the web recently claiming that Google has, quote, no moat in AI because open source models running on commodity hardware are rapidly evolving and catching up to the tools run by the tech giants. I asked Demis about that memo, and he confirmed that it was real, but he said it was part of Google's debate culture and that he disagreed with it. And we talked about his other ideas about where Google's competitive advantages might come into play. Of course, we also talked about AI risk and especially artificial general intelligence. Demis is not shy that his goal is building an AGI. And we talked about what risks and regulations there should be and on what timeline. Demis recently signed on to a 22-word statement about AI risk with OpenAI, Sam Altman, and others that simply reads, quote, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal-scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. So that's pretty chill. But is that the real risk right now or just distraction from other, more tangible problems like AI replacing a bunch of labor in various creative industries? We also talked about the new kinds of labor that AI is creating, armies of low-paid taskers classifying training data in countries like Kenya and India. We just did a big feature on these taskers, which we'll link to in the show notes. 
I wanted to know if Dennis thought these jobs were here to stay or just a temporary side effect of the AI boom. I gotta say, this one really hits all the decoder high points. There's the big idea of AI, there's all the problems that come with it, an infinite array of complicated decisions to be made, and of course, a gigantic org chart change in the middle of it all. Demis and I got pretty into the weeds, and I still don't think we covered it all, so we'll have to have him back soon. A one-hour AI metadata show, I promise you. We're gonna make this happen. Okay, Demis Asabis, CEO of Google DeepMind. Here we go. Demis Asabas, you are the CEO of Google DeepMind. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks for having me. I am very excited to talk to you. I don't think we have ever had a more perfect Decoder guest. There's like a big idea in AI. It comes with a bunch of challenges and problems. And then with you in particular, there's a gigantic org chart move and a set of high stakes decisions to be made. I am thrilled that you are here. (laughs) Glad to be here. Let's start with Google DeepMind itself. Google DeepMind is a new part of Google that is constructed of two existing parts of Google. There was Google Brain, which was the AI team we were familiar with as we covered Google. That was run by Jeff Dean. And there was DeepMind, which was your company that you founded. You sold it to Alphabet in 2014. You were outside of Google. It was run as sort of a separate company instead of holding company Alphabet structure until just now. Start at the very beginning. Why were DeepMind and Google Brain separate to begin with? Well, as you mentioned, we started DeepMind actually back in 2010, long time ago now, especially uh, in the age of AI. So, you know, that's sort of like prehistory. Myself and the co-founders, we sort of realized coming from academia and seeing what was going on there, things like deep learning had just been invented. We were big proponents of reinforcement learning. We could see GPUs and, and other hardware was coming online that a lot of great progress could be made with a focused effort on general learning systems and also taking some ideas from neuroscience and how the brain works. And so we put all those ingredients together uh, back in 2010. We had this thesis, we'd make fast progress, and that's what happened with our uh, initial game systems. And then we decided in 2014 to join forces with Google at the time because we could see that a lot more compute was going to be needed. And obviously, Google has the most computers and had the most computers in the world. <laughs> uh, and so that was that was the obvious home for us to be able to focus on you know pushing the research as fast as possible. So you were acquired by Google, and then somewhere along the way, Google reoriented itself. Right? They they turned into Alphabet and. Google became a division of Alphabet. There's other divisions of Alphabet. And DeepMind was out of it. And that's just the part I want to focus on right here at the beginning. Because there was what Google was doing with Google Brain, which is a lot of LLM research. I recall six years ago, Google was showing off LLMs at at Google I.O. But DeepMind was focused on winning game, AlphaGo and protein folding, a very different kind of AI research wholly outside of Google. Why was that outside of Google? Why was that in Alphabet proper? That was part of the agreement as as we were acquired, was that we would pursue pushing forward research into general AI, or sometimes called AGI. Yeah. A system that out of the box can operate across a wide range of uh, cognitive tasks and basically has all the cognitive capabilities uh, that humans have. 
and also using AI to accelerate scientific discovery. That's one of my personal passions. That explains projects like AlphaFold that I'm sure we're going to get back to. Mm -hmm. But also from the start of DeepMind and actually prior to even DeepMind starting, uh, I believe that games was a perfect sort of testing or proving ground for developing AI algorithms efficiently. You know, quickly, you can generate a lot of data and the objective functions are very are very clear, obviously winning games or, or, or maximizing the score. So there were a lot of reasons to use games in the early days of AI research. And that was a big part of why we were so successful and why we were able to advance so quickly with things like AlphaGo, you know, the, the program that beat the world champion at, at, at the ancient game of Go. Those were all really important proof points for the whole field, really, that uh, these sort of general learning techniques would work. And of course, we've done a lot of work on deep learning and neural networks as well. And um, our speciality, I suppose, was combining that with reinforcement learning for, to allow these systems to actively solve problems uh, and make plans and do things like, you know, win games. And in terms of like the, the differences, we always had that sort of remit to push the research agenda and push things advanced science. And that was very much uh, the focus we were given and very much the focus that I wanted to have. And then the, the internal Google AI teams like Google Brain, they had slightly different remits and were a bit closer to product mm -hmm. uh, and obviously to the rest of Google and infusing Google with uh, amazing AI technology. And we also had an applied division that was introducing DeepMind technology into Google products too. But the cultures were quite different and the remits were yeah. quite different. So from the outside, the timeline kind of looks like this. It, everyone's been working on this for ages. We've all been talking about it for ages it is a topic of conversation for a bunch of nerdy journalists like me, a bunch of researchers. We talk about it in the corner of Google events. Then ChatGPT is released, not even as a product. I don't even think Sam would call it a, a great product when it was released. But it was just released and people could use it and everyone freaked out. And Microsoft releases Bing based on ChatGPT. And the world goes upside down and Google reacts by merging DeepMind and Google Brain. That's what it looks like from the outside. Is that what it felt like from the inside? That timeline is uh, correct, but it's not It's not these sort of direct consequences. It's yeah. more indirect in a sense. So Google and Alphabet have always run like this. They, they, they let many flowers bloom, right? And I think that is, that is, <laughs> yes. uh, that's always been the way that, you know, even from Larry and Sergey from the beginning set up Google and it served them very well. And it's allowed them to organically create incredible things and, and become the amazing company that it is today. On the research side, I think it's very compatible with doing research, which is one another reason we chose Google as our partners back in you know 2014. I felt they really understood what fundamental and blue sky research was, ambitious research was, and they were going to uh, facilitate us being and enable us to be super ambitious with our research. And you've seen the results of that, right? By any measure, you know, AlphaGo, AlphaFold, but you know, more than 20 Nature and Science papers and so on, all the all the normal metrics one would use for for for, for really cutting edge, uh, delivering amazing cutting edge research uh, we were able to do. But in a way, what ChatGPT and, and the large models and the public reaction to that confirmed is that AI has entered a new era. And by the way, those of you, it was a little bit surprising for all of us at the coalface, including, mm -hmm. I think, OpenAI, how viral that went, because um, we all had us and, and other some other startups like Anthropic and OpenAI, we all had these you know, large language models, they're all roughly the same capabilities. And it was surprising, not so much what the technology was, because we all understood that, but the, the public's appetite for that, I would say, and the, obviously the buzz that generated. And I think that's indicative of something we've all been feeling for the last, I would say, two, three years, which is 
these systems are reaching a level of maturity now and sophistication where it can come really come out of the research phase uh, and the lab and go into powering incredible next generation products and experiences and also uh, breakthroughs, things like AlphaFold, you know, directly being useful for biologists. And so to me, uh, this is just indicative of a new phase that AI is in of being practically useful to people in their everyday lives and actually being able to solve really hard real world problems that really matter, not just the curiosities or fun like like games. You know, when you recognize that shift, I think that necessitates a change in your approach as to how you're approaching the research and uh, how much focus you're having on products and those kinds of things. And I think that's what uh, we all came to the realization of, which was it now was the time to streamline our AI efforts and, and focus them more. The obvious kind of conclusion of that was to, to do the merger. I want to just stop there for one second and ask kind of a philosophical question. Sure. It feels like the, the chat GBT moment that led to this AI explosion this year was really rooted in the AI being able to do something that regular people could do. Right. I want you to write me an email. I want you to write me a screenplay. And maybe it's a C, maybe the output of the LLM is a C plus, but it's still like something I can do. Right. Like people can see it. I want you to fill out the rest of this photo. That's something people can imagine doing. Maybe they don't have the skills to do it, but they can imagine doing it. All the previous AI demos that we have gotten, even yours, AlphaFold, you're like, this is going to model all the proteins in the world. Like, I can't do that. That's like, great, a computer should do that. Like, even a, yeah. a microbiologist might think, that is great. I am very excited that a computer can do that because I'm just looking at how much time it would take us, and there's no way we could ever do it. I want to beat the world champion at Go. I, I can't do that. It's like, fine, a computer can do that. There's this turn where the computer is starting to do things I can do. And it's not even doing, and they're not even like necessarily the most complicated tasks, like read this web page and deliver a summary of it to me. But that's the thing that unlocked everyone's brain. And I, I'm wondering why you think the industry didn't see that turn coming. Because we've been very focused on these very difficult things that people couldn't do. And it seems like what got everyone is when the computer started doing pe things people do all the time. Yeah, I think that analysis is correct. I think that is why the large language models have really entered the public consciousness because it's something the average person, the, the you know Joe public, can actually uh, understand and interact with. And of course, language is core to human intelligence and our and, and our everyday lives. So I think that does explain why chatbots specifically have sort of gone viral in the way they have. Uh, even though I would say things like uh, AlphaFold. Um, you know, I mean, of course, I'd be biased in, in, in saying this, but, you know, I think it's actually had the most unequivocally biggest sort of beneficial effects so far in AI in, on the world, because, you know, there's a million biologists now, researchers and medical researchers have used AlphaFold. I think that's nearly every biologist in the world. Every big pharma company is using it to advance their drug discovery programs. I've had you know, dozens of Nobel Prize winner level biologists and chemists talk, talk to me about how they're using AlphaFold. So a certain set of all the world scientists, let's say, they all know AlphaFold. It's affected and, and massively accelerated their important research work. Um, but of course, the average person in the street doesn't know what proteins are even and uh, doesn't know what the importance of those things are for things like drug discovery. Whereas obviously for a chatbot, everyone can understand this is incredible and it's very visceral uh, to you know get it to write you a poem or something everybody can understand and, and process and kind of measure compared to what they do uh, or able to do. 
it seems like that is the focus of productized AI, right? These sort of chatbot-like interfaces or these generative products that are going to make stuff for people. And that, yes. that's, that's where the risk has been focused. Even a conversation about risk, right, has dramatically escalated. And I want to I make sure we talk about that at length. But even the conversation is ri- about risk has escalated because people can now see, oh, these schools can do stuff. Were you, did you perceive the same level of scrutiny when you were working on AlphaFold? It doesn't seem like anyone thought, oh, AlphaFold's going to destroy humanity. No, but but there was a lot of scrutiny, but it just, again, it was in a very specialized area, right? Yeah. With renowned experts. And actually, we did talk to over 30 experts in the field from, you know, top biologists to bioethicists to biosecurity people. Uh, and actually, our partners, we partnered with the European Bioinformatics Institute to release the AlphaFold database of all the protein structures. Uh, and they guided us as well on on how this could be safely put out there. So there was a lot of scrutiny. And the overwhelming conclusion from the people we consulted was that the benefits far outweighed any any risks, although we did make some small adjustments based on their feedback about which uh, structures to release. You know, there was a lot of scrutiny. But again, it's just in a, in a very expert sort of domain. And with the gen, just going back to your first question about the generative models, I do think we are right at the beginning of an incredible new era that's going to play out over the next five, 10 years, not only in advancing science with AI, but in terms of the types of products we can build to improve people's everyday lives, you know, billions of people in their everyday lives and help them to be more efficient and to enrich their lives. And I think what we're seeing today with these chatbots is literally just scratching the surface. There's a lot more types of AI than generative AI. Generative AI is now, you know, the in thing. But I think that planning and deep reinforcement learning and problem solving and reasoning, those kinds of capabilities are going to come back in in the next wave after this, uh, along with the current capabilities of the current systems. So I think in a year or two's time, we're going to be, you know, if we were to talk again, we're going to be uh, talking about uh, entirely new types of products and, and, and experiences and services that we've never seen before capabilities. And I'm very excited about building those things, actually. That's one of the reasons I'm very excited about leading Google DeepMind now in this new era and focusing on building these uh, AI-powered next-generation products. Let's stay in the, the weeds of, of Google DeepMind itself for, for one more turn. Sunar Prashai comes to you and says, all right, I'm the CEO of Alphabet and the CEO of Google. I can just make this call. I'm going to bring DeepMind into Google, merge you with Google Brain. You're going to be the CEO. How did you react to that prompt? It wasn't wasn't like that. So it was uh, much more of a conversation between the leaders of the various different uh, relevant groups and Sundar about uh, the inflection point that we're seeing, the maturity of the systems and what could be possible with those in the product space uh, and how to improve experiences for our users, our billions of users, and and how exciting that might be and what that all requires in totality, both the change in focus, a change in the approach to research, the combination of resources that are required, like compute resources. So there was a sort of big collection of factors to take into account that we all discussed as a, as a leadership group. And then conclusions from that then result in actions, uh, including the merger and also what the plans are then for the next couple of years and what the focus should be of that merged uh, merged unit. Do you perceive a difference being a CEO inside of Google versus being a CEO inside of Alphabet? It's still early days, but uh, I, I think it's it's been pretty similar because uh, although we were DeepMind was an Alphabet company, 
it was very unusual for a, a, another bet, as they call it, yeah. alphabet, um, which is that we already were very closely integrated and, and collaborating with many of the Google product area teams and groups. We had an applied team at DeepMind that, whose job was, it was to translate our research work into features in products by collaborating with the Google product teams. And so we've had hundreds of successful launches already actually over the last few years, just quiet mm -hmm. ones behind the scenes. So in fact, many of the services or devices or uh, systems that you use every day at Google will have some kind of DeepMind technology under the hood uh, in, in, as a component. So we already had that integrative structure. And then of course, what we were famous for was doing the scientific advances and gaming advances. Um, but behind the scenes, there was a lot of bread and butter work going on that was affecting all parts of Google. We were different from other bets where they have to make a business, you know, outside of Google and 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 sort of become an independent business. That was never uh, the goal or the remit for us, even as a independent sort of bet company. And now within Google, we're just more tightly integrated in terms of the product services. And I see that as an advantage because we can actually go deeper and do more exciting and ambitious things in much closer collaboration with these other product teams uh, than we could from outside of Google. But we still retain some sort of latitude to pick the processes and the systems that optimize our mission of you know, producing the most capable and general AI systems in the world. There's been a bunch of reporting that this is actually a bit of a culture clash. You're now in charge of both. How have you structured the group? How is Google DeepMind structured under you as CEO? And how are you managing that, that culture integration? Actually, you know, it turns out the culture is a lot more similar than perhaps has been reported externally. And in the end, it's actually been surprisingly smooth and pleasant because you're talking about two world-class research groups, you know, mm -hmm. two of the best AI research organizations in the world, incredible talent on both sides, storied histories. As we were thinking about the merger and sort of planning it, we were looking at, you know, we sort of, we had some document where we listed, uh, I guess, the top 10 breakthroughs from each group. And, you know, when you look, when you take that in totality, <laughs> you know, it's like 80, 90% of or over the last decade of the breakthroughs that, you know, underpin the modern AI industry, from deep reinforcement learning to transformers, of course. Transformer is a type of neural network architecture. So it's an incredible set of people and, and talent, and there's massive respect for both groups on both sides. And there was actually a lot of collaboration uh, on a project-based level ongoing over the last decade. So, of course, we, we all know each other very well. I just think it's a, it's a question of focus and a bit of coordination across both groups, actually, and more in terms of like, what are we going to focus on? Um, yeah. Other places that, that it makes sense to collect the two team, you know, two separate teams to collaborate on and maybe deduplicate some efforts that basically are overlapping. So fairly, you know, fairly obvious stuff, to be honest, but it's important moving into this new phase now where we're kind of into a more of an engineering phase of AI, uh, and that requires huge resources, both compute, engineering and other things. And you've, even as a company the size of Google, we've got to pick our bets carefully and be clear about which arrows we're going to put our wood behind and then focus on those and, and then massively deliver on those things. So it's just, uh, that's, I think it's part of the natural course of evolution as to where we are uh, in the AI journey. So that, that thing you talked about, we're going to combine these groups, we're going to pick what we're doing, we're going to deduplicate some efforts. Those are structure questions. Have you decided on a structure yet? And what do you think that structure will be? 
We have. I mean, the structure is still evolving. You know, we're only a couple of months into it. We wanted to make sure we didn't break anything that was working. Both teams are incredibly productive, uh, doing super amazing research, but also plugging in to very important product things that are going on. Um, You keep saying both teams. Do you think of it as both two teams or are you trying to make one team? No, no, it's for sure. It's one unified team. I like to call it a super unit. Um, <laughs> and I'm very excited about that. But obviously, we're still sort of combining that and forming the new culture and forming the new grouping, including the organizational structures. You know, it's complex things, putting two big research groups together like this. But I, I think over by the end of the summer, you know, we'll be a single unified entity. And I think that'll be very, very exciting. And we're already feeling even a couple of months in the benefits and the strengths of that with projects like Gemini that you may have heard of, which is our next generation multimodal large models. Very, very exciting work going on there, combining all the best ideas from across both world-class research groups. Gemini, by the way, is Google's next generation AI language model. Think of it like GPT-4 compared to GPT-3. We have to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. Support for the show comes from the Harvard Business Review, the leading destination for smart management thinkers. You're a business leader, which means you have to deal with several different issues week after week. Look, it can be tough being the one calling the shots, but the Harvard Business Review can be a good place to help lighten the load on your shoulders. There's a lot of great stuff you can find at hbr.org, but for just $10 a month, you can get access to unlimited content, including insider newsletters, case studies, and the HBR mobile app. I had a chance to check out hbr.org, and let me tell you, the articles and case studies are very enlightening. Plus, you'll find podcasts, case studies, videos, newsletters, so much more. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code DECODER right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to hbr.org slash subscriptions, enter promo code DECODER to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. Support for this podcast comes from HIMSS. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health, and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back with Dennis Asavis. 
you have a lot of decisions to make, right? What you're describing is a bunch of complicated decisions. Then out in the world, how should we regulate this? Which is another set of very complicated decisions. And you're a chess champion. You're a person who's made the games. So what's your framework for making decisions? I suspect it's more rigorous than other ones I might hear about. I think it probably is. And I think if you if you play a game like chess that seriously, effectively, professionally, since you know, in my all my childhood, since the age of four, I think it's very formative for your brain. So chess is a, and the sort of problem solving and strategizing. I find it a very useful framework for for many things and decision making. Chess is basically decision making under pressure uh, with an opponent. It's very complex, and I think it's a great thing. I advocate it being taught at schools, actually, <laughs> as part of the school curriculum, because I think it's a really fantastic training ground for for problem solving and decision making. But then I think actually the overarching approach is more of a, like the scientific method. So I think all my training as my doing my PhDs and and postdocs and so on. Obviously, I did it in neuroscience, so I was learning about the brain. But it also taught me how to do rigorous sort of hypothesis testing and hypothesis generation and then, you know, update based on on empirical evidence. So I think the whole scientific method, uh, as well as the chess planning, both are can be translated into the business domain. You have to be smart about how to translate that. So you can't be, you know, academic about these things. And often in the real world, in business, there's a lot of uncertainty and hidden information that you don't know. So in chess, obviously, you, all the information's there for you on the board. You can't just sort of directly translate those skills. Um, but I think in the background, uh, they can be very helpful if, if applied in the right way. Give me an example. Make that real for people. How do you combine those two in some decision you've made? There's so many decisions I make every day. It's hard to, to, to come up with one now, but it's, I tend to try and plan out and scenario plan many, many years in advance. I tell you the way I, I try to approach things is I have an end goal. I'm quite good at imagining things. So that's a different skill, visualizing or imagining uh, what an end state would, you know, a perfect end state would look like, mm -hmm. whether that's organizational or it's product based or it's research based. And then uh, I kind of work back from the end point and then figure out what all the steps would be required uh, and in what order to make that outcome, you know, as likely as possible. So that's a little bit chess like, right, in the sense of like you have some plan that you would like to get to checkmate, you know, your opponent, but you're, you're many moves away from that. So what are the incremental things one must do to improve your position in order to increase the likelihood of that final outcome? And I found that extremely useful to do that search process from, you know, the end goal back to the state, that the, the, the current state that you, you find yourself in. Let's put that next to some products, right? You said there's a lot of DeepMind technology and a lot of Google products. I think yeah. obviously the ones that we can all look at are Bard and the new search generative experience. Obviously there's AI and Google photos and all this stuff, but focused on sort of the LLM moment, it's Bard and the search generative experience. Those can't be the end state. Right. Like that, that, that that's no. not they're not finished. And Gemini is coming and we'll probably improve both of those and all that will happen. When you think about the end state of those products, what do you see? The AI systems around Google are, are also not just in the in the consumer facing things, but also under the hood, right, that you may not realize. So even, for example, one of the things we applied our AI systems to very initially was the cooling systems in Google's data centers, enormous data centers, and actually reducing the energy they use by, you know, nearly 30 percent uh, that the cooling systems use, which is obviously huge if you multiply that by all of the data centers and computers they have there. So there's actually a lot of things under the hood where AI is being used to improve 
improve the, the efficiency of those systems all the time. But you're right. The current products are not the end state. They're just they're actually just waypoints, I would say. In the case of chatbots and, and, and those kinds of systems, I think ultimately they will become these incredible universal personal assistants that you kind of use multiple times during the day for, for many, many things across uh, really useful and helpful things across your daily lives uh, from what books to read to you know recommendations on on maybe live events and things like that to booking your travel uh, to planning you know trips for you to assisting you in your in your everyday work and I think we're still far away from that with the current chatbots uh, and and I think we know what's missing uh, things like planning and reasoning and memory and we're working you know really hard on those things and I think what you'll see in maybe a couple of years time you know today's chatbots will look trivial by comparison to, I think, what's coming in the next few years. My background is as a person who's reported on computers. I think of computers as somewhat modular systems, right? You look at a phone, it's got a screen, it's got a chip, it's got a cell antenna, whatever. It, should I look at AI systems that way? There's an LLM, which is a very convincing human language interface, and behind it might be AlphaFold that's actually doing the protein folding. Is that how you're thinking about stitching these things together, or is it a different evolutionary pathway? So actually, there's a whole branch of research going into what's called tool use. Mm -hmm. So this is the idea that these large language models or large multimodal models, they're expert at language, of course, and maybe a few other capabilities like math and possibly coding. But when you ask them to do something specialized, like fold a protein or play a game of chess or something like this, actually what they end up doing is calling a tool, which could be another AI system, that then provides the, you know, the solution or the answer to that particular problem. And then that's transmitted back to the user via language, right, or, or pictorially through the central large language model uh, system. So, uh, so it may be invisible to the user because it, to the user, it just looks like one big AI system that has many capabilities. But under the hood, it could be that actually the AI system is broken down into smaller ones that have uh, specializations. Uh, and I actually think that probably is going to be the next generation of systems will be uh, will, will sort of use those kinds of capabilities. And then you can think of the central system as almost a switch statement that you, pro you, you effectively prompt with language and it routes your query or your question or, or, or whatever it is you're asking it to the right tool to solve that question you know, for you or provide the solution for you uh, and then transmit that back in a very understandable way, again, through using through the interface, uh, the best interface really of natural language. Does that get you closer to an AGI? I know, you know, it's like in your Twitter bio, right? You're, this is where you yeah. are headed as AGI. Does that process get you closer to an AGI or does that get you to some sort of maximum state and you got to do something else? I think that is on the critical path to AGI. And that's another reason, by the way, I'm very excited about this new role and, and, and actually doing more products and things, because I actually think the product roadmap from here and the research roadmap from here uh, towards something like AGI or human level AI is very complementary. Right. So I think the kinds of capabilities one would need to push uh, in order to build those kinds of products that are, are useful in your everyday life, like a universal assistant, requires pushing on some of these capabilities like planning and memory and reasoning that I think are vital for us to get to AGI. So I actually think there's a really neat feedback loop now between products and research where um, they can effectively uh, help each other. 
I feel like I, I had a lot of car CEOs in the show at the beginning of it. I asked all of them, when do you think we're going to get self-driving cars? And they all said five <laughs> years. And they've been saying five years for five years, right? Yes. I'm going to ask you the same a version of that question about AGI, but I feel like that the number has gotten smaller recently with people I've talked to. How many years until you think we have AGI? I think there's a lot of uncertainty over how many more breakthroughs are required to get to AGI. Big, big breakthroughs, innovative breakthroughs versus just scaling up existing solutions. And I think it it, it very much depends on that uh, in terms of time frame. Obviously, if there are a lot of breakthroughs still required, those are a lot harder to do and take a lot longer. But right now, uh, you know, I would not be surprised if we, we approach something like AGI or AGI-like uh, in the next decade. In the next decade. All right, I'm going to hold yeah. you. I'm going to come back to you in 10 years. We're going to see if that sure. happens. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's not a straight line, though. You called it the critical path. That, that, that's not a straight line, right? There's, there's breakthroughs no. along the way that might upset the train and send you along a different path, you think? Yeah, research is never a straight line, right? If it, if it is, then it's not, it's not real research. If you knew the answer before you started it, then that's not research. So research and blue sky research always and uh, 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 sort of at the frontier uh, always has uncertainty around it. And that's why you can't really predict timelines with any certainty. But what you can look at is trends and we can sort of look at the quality of ideas and projects that are being worked on today, look at how they're progressing. You know, that could go either way over the next, you know, five to 10 years where we might asymptote, we might hit a brick wall with current techniques and scaling. We may find, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that happened either, that we may find that just scaling the existing systems, you know, resulted in diminishing returns uh, in terms of the performance of the system. And actually, that would then signal some new innovations were really required to make further progress. And so at the moment, I think nobody knows which regime we're in. So the answer to that is you have to push on both as as hard as possible. So both the scaling and the engineering of existing systems and existing ideas, as well as investing heavily into exploratory research directions that you think um, might deliver innovations that are might solve some of the uh, uh, weaknesses in the current systems. And that's one advantage of being a large research organization with a lot of resources is we can bet on both of those things maximally, right? Both of those directions. So I think in a way, I'm kind of agnostic to that mm -hmm. question of like, do we need more breakthroughs or will existing systems uh, just scale all the way? My view is it's an empirical question and one should push both as hard as possible and then we'll let, you know, the, the, the results will speak for themselves. So this is a real tension, right? When you were deep mind in Alphabet and you were very research focused, I, I think you had the luxury of that and then the research was moved back into Google and Google's engineers would turn it into products. And you can see how that relationship worked. Now you're inside of Google. Google is under a lot of pressure as a company to win this battle. And those are product concerns. Those are make it real for people and go win in the market. There's a leaked memo that went around. It was purportedly from inside Google. It said the company had no moat and that open source AI models or leaked models would run on people's laptops and they would outpace the company because the history of open computing would outpace a closed source competitor. Was that memo real? I think that mirror was real. Um, you know, engineers at Google often write various documents and sometimes they get leaked and go viral. I think that's that's just a sort of <laughs> kind of thing that happens. And uh, but I, I wouldn't take it too seriously. You know, these are uh, just opinions. I think, you know, it's it's interesting to, to listen to them. And then you've got to chart your own course. You know, I haven't read that memo, specific memo in detail, but I, I disagree with the conclusions from that. And uh, there's obviously open source and uh, publishing and uh, and we've done tons of that 
in the history of DeepMind. I mean, we gave AlphaFold was open sourced, right? Yep. So we obviously believe in open source and, and supporting research and open research. That's a key thing of the scientific discourse, uh, which we've been a huge part of. And, and so is Google, you know, of course, publishing Transformers and other things and TensorFlow. And, you know, you look at all the things we've done. We, we do We do a huge amount in that space. But I also think there are other considerations that need to be had as well, obviously commercial ones, but also safety questions as well yeah. about access to these very powerful systems. What if bad actors can access it who maybe aren't that technical, so they couldn't have built it themselves, but they can certainly reconfigure a system that mm-hmm. is out there. You know, what do you do about those things? And I think that's been quite theoretical to till now, but I think that that is really important from here uh, all the way to AGI as these as these systems become more general, more sophisticated, more powerful, you know, that question is going to be very important about how does one stop bad actors just using these systems for for things they weren't intended for, but for malicious purposes. That's something we need to increasingly come up with. But just to back to your question is Look at the history of what Google and DeepMind have done in terms of coming up with new innovations and breakthroughs and multiple, multiple breakthroughs over the last decade or more. You know, I would bet on us and and I'm certainly very confident that that will continue and, and actually be even more true over the next decade uh, in terms of us producing the next key breakthroughs, just like we we did in, in the past. Do you think that's the moat? We invented most of this stuff, so we're going to invent the most of the next stuff? You know, I don't really think about it as modes, but we're, I'm an incredibly competitive person. That's maybe another thing I got from, from chess and, <laughs> and, and many researchers are, you know, of course they're, they're doing it to discover knowledge. And ultimately that's what we're here for is to, to improve uh, the human condition. But also we want to be first to do these things and, and, and do them responsibly and boldly. We have some of the world's best researchers. I think we have the biggest collection of, of great researchers in the world, anywhere in the world. And, uh, incredible track record. And there's no reason why um, that shouldn't continue in the future. And in fact, I think with our new organization and environment might be conducive to to even more uh, uh, and faster paced breakthroughs than we've done in the past. You're leading me towards risk and regulation. I, I want to talk about that, but I want to start in with just sort of a different spin on it. Uh, you're talking about all the work that has to be done. You talk about DeepMind, reinforcement learning, how that works. We just ran a gigantic story in collaboration with New York Magazine. It was on the cover of New York Magazine about the taskers who are actually doing the training, who are actually labeling the data. There's a lot of labor conversation with AI along the way, right? Hollywood writers are on strike right now because they don't want ChatGPT to write a bunch of scripts. I think that's appropriate. But then there's a new class of labor that's being developed where a bunch of people around the world are sitting in front of computers and saying, yeah, that's a stop sign. No, that's not a stop sign. Yep, that's clothes you can wear. No, that's not clothes you can wear. Is that a forever state? Is that just a new class of work that needs to be done for these systems to operate? Or does that come to an end? It's hard to say. Uh, I think it's definitely a moment in time and the current systems and what they're requiring uh, at the moment. We've been very careful just to say from our part, and I think I think you quoted some of our researchers in that article, to be very careful to pay living wages and be, be very responsible about how we do that kind of work and which partners we use. Uh, and we also use internal teams as well. So I think we've been actually, I'm very proud of sort of, res- of the, how responsible we've been on that type of work. But going forwards, y- you know, I think there may be ways that these systems, um, especially once you have millions and millions of users effectively can sort of bootstrap themselves 
or um, one could imagine AI systems that are capable of actually sort of conversing with themselves or critiquing themselves. This would be a bit like turning language systems into a game-like setting, which of course we're very expert in and we've been thinking about where these reinforcement learning systems, you know, different versions of them can actually sort of rate each other right in some way and it may not be as good as a human rater but it's actually a useful way to sort of do some of the bread and butter rating and then maybe just calibrate it by checking those ratings with a, a human rater at the end rather than getting human raters to rate everything so i think there are lots of innovations i can see coming down the line that will help with this and potentially mean that there's there's less requirement for for this all to be done by human raters but you think there's always human raters in the mix, right? Even as you get closer to AGI, it seems like you need someone to tell the computer if it's doing a good job or not. Let's take AlphaZero as an example. Our general games playing system that ended up learning itself how to play any two-player game, right, including chess and Go. And it's interesting. What happened there is we, we set up the system so that it could play against itself tens of millions of times. So in fact, it built up its own knowledge base, right? Started from random, played itself, bootstrapped itself, trained better versions of itself, play, and played those off each other in sort of mini tournaments. But at the end, you still want to test it against the human world champion or something like this, uh, or an external computer program that was built in a, in a conventional way, so that you can just calibrate your own metrics, which are telling you, you know, these systems are improving according to these objectives or these metrics, but you don't know for sure until you calibrate it with an external benchmark or measure. And depending on what that is, a human rater or human benchmark, human expert uh, is often the best uh, thing to calibrate the, the, the your internal testing against, right? And you make sure that your internal tests are actually mapping reality. And again, that's something quite exciting about products for researchers, because when you put your research into products and millions of people are using it every day, that's when you get real world feedback there's no way around that, right? That's yeah. that's that's the reality, and that, that's that's the best test of any any theories or any system that you've built. Do you think that work is rewarding or appropriate? The sort of labeling of data for AI system, like there's just something about that, which is I'm going to tell a computer how to understand the world so that it might go off in the future and displace other people. There's a loop in there that seems like it's worth more just moral or philosophical consideration. Have you spent time thinking about that? Yeah, I do think about that. I think I don't really see it like that. I think that what they what what raters are doing is they're part of the development uh, cycle of making these systems safer, more useful for everybody, and uh, more helpful and more reliable. So I think it's a critical component in many industries. We have safety testing yeah. of you know technologies and products, and today that's the best we can do. Uh, uh, for AI systems, right, is to is to have human raters. I think in the future, next few years, I think we need more, you know, we, we need a lot more research and I've been calling for this and we're doing this ourselves, but it needs more than just one organization to do this, is great, robust evaluation benchmarks for capabilities, right? So that we know if a system passes these benchmarks, then it has certain properties and it's safe and it's reliable in these particular ways, right? And right now, I think we're in the space of many researchers in academia and civil society and elsewhere. We have a lot of good suggestions for what those tests could be, but I don't think they are robust or practical yet. I think they're basically theoretical and philosophical in nature. And I think they need to be made practical so that we can measure our systems 
you know, empirically against those tests. And then that gives us some assurances about about how the system will perform. And I think once we have those, then the need for this sort of human rating testing uh, feedback will be reduced. I just think that's required in the volumes it's required now because we don't have these kinds of independent benchmarks yet, partly because we haven't rigorously defined what those properties are. I mean, it's it's almost a, a neuroscience and psychology and philosophy area as well, right? Yeah. A lot of these terms have not been defined properly, even for, you know, the, the human brain. All right, one more short break. We'll be right back. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back with Demis Hassabis, the CEO of Google DeepMind. You've signed a letter from the Center for AI Safety, OpenAI's Sam Altman, and others have also signed this letter, that warns against the risk from AI. Mm-hmm. And yet you're, you're pushing on, right? Like Google's in the market, you've got to win, you've described yourself as competitive. There's a tension there, right? Needing to win in the market with products and, oh boy, please regulate us because raw capitalism will will drive us off the cliff with AI if we don't stop it in some way. How do you balance that risk? It is a tension. It's a creative tension. What we like to say at Google is we want to be bold and responsible. And that's exactly what we're trying to do and live out and, and role model. So the bold part is being brave and optimistic about what AI, the benefits, the amazing benefits, incredible benefits AI can bring to the world and to help humanity with our biggest challenges, whether that's disease or climate or sustainability. You know, I think uh, AI has huge part to play in helping our scientists and medical experts solve those problems. And we're working hard on that and uh, on all those areas. And AlphaFold, again, I'd point to as a poster child for that, what we want to do there. So that, that's the bold part. And then the responsible bit is to make sure we do that as thoughtfully as possible with as much foresight as possible uh, ahead of time. You know, try and anticipate what the issues might be uh, if one were successful ahead of time, not in hindsight, like perhaps has happened with social media, for example, where, you know, it, it is this incredible growth story. Obviously, it's done a lot of good in the world. But then it turns out 15 years later, we realize there are some consequences, unintended consequences as well to those types of systems. And I would like to chart a different path with AI. And I think it's such a profound and important and powerful technology. I think we have to do that with something as potentially as transformative as AI. And it doesn't mean no mistakes will be made. Uh, it's, you know, it's very new, anything new. Some things, you, you know, you can't predict everything ahead of time, but I think uh, we can try and do the best job we can. And and that's what signing that letter was for, was just to point out 
that there are uh, that we don't know the you know I don't think it's likely I don't think it's you know I don't know on the time scales but it's something that we should consider too in the limit is what these systems can do uh, and might be able to do as we get closer to AGI we're nowhere near that now so this is not a question of today's technologies or even even the next few years but at some point and given the technologies accelerating very fast we will need to think about those questions and we don't want to be thinking about them on the eve of them happening. We need to use the time now, the next five, 10, you know, whatever it is, years to do the research and to do the analysis and to engage with, um, you know, various stakeholders, civil society, academia, government to figure out as this stuff is developing very rapidly, what the best way is of uh, making sure we maximize the benefits and minimize the, uh, any risks. And that includes mostly at this stage, doing more research into these areas like coming up with better evaluations and benchmarks to rigorously test the capabilities of these um, frontier systems. You talked about tool usage for AI models, right? You, talk, you ask an LLM to do something, it goes off and asks Alpha Fold to fold approaching for you. Combining systems like that, integrating systems like that, historically, that's where emergent behaviors appear, right? Things you couldn't have predicted happen start happening. Are you worried about that? That there, there's not a rigorous way to test that? Like you, you assemble a computer, the computer starts doing stuff you never expected. Right, exactly. I think that's exactly the sort of thing we should be researching and thinking about um, ahead of time is as tool use becomes more sophisticated and you can combine different AI systems together in different ways, there is um, scope for emergent behavior. Uh, of course, that emergent behavior may be very desirable and be extremely useful, but it could also uh, potentially be harmful in the wrong hands uh, and in the hands of bad actors, whether that's individuals or even nation states. Let's say the United States and the EU and China all agree on some framework to regulate AI. And then North Korea or Iran says, fuck it, no rules. And that becomes a center of bad actor research. How does that play out? Do you see a world in which that's possible? Yeah, I think, you know, that is a possible world. This is why I've been talking, you know, to governments, UK, US mostly, but also EU on, I think, whatever, uh, you know, regulations or guardrails or whatever that is that, that transpires over the next few years and tests, they ideally would be international and there would be international cooperation around those safeguards and uh, international agreement around deployment of these systems and, and other things. Now, you know, I don't know how likely that is, given the geopolitical tensions around the world, but that is by far the best state. And I think what we should be aiming for uh, uh, if we can. If the government here passes a rule, it says, here's, the, here's what Google is allowed to do. Here's what Microsoft is allowed to do. You are in charge. You are accountable. And you can go say, all right, we're just not running this code in our data center. We are, we are not going to have these capabilities. It's not legal. If I'm just a person with a MacBook, would you accept some limitation on what a MacBook could do because the threat from AI is so scary? That's the thing I worry about. Like practically, if you have open source models and people are going to use them yeah. for weird things, are we going to tell Intel to re restrict what its chips can do? How would we implement that such that it actually affects everyone and not just we're going to throw a Demis in jail if Google does stuff we don't like? Those are the big questions that are being debated right now. And I do worry about that is that if, you know, on the one hand, there are a lot of benefits of open sourcing and, and, and accelerating scientific discourse and lots of advances happen there and it gives access to, to many developers. On the other hand, there could be some negative consequences with that if there are bad individual actors that do bad things with that, that access uh, and that, that proliferates. And I think 
that's a question for the next few years that will need to be resolved because right now I think it's okay because the systems are not that sophisticated or that powerful and therefore not that risky. But I think as the systems uh, increase in their, in, in increase in their power uh, and generality, the access question will need to be thought about for, from government and how they want to restrict that or control that or, or monitor that is going to be an important question. Uh, I don't have any answers for you because I think this is a societal question actually that requires uh, stakeholders from right across society to come together and and weigh up the benefits uh, with the risks there. You said we're not there yet, but Google's own work in AI certainly had some controversy associated with this around responsibility, around what the models can do or can't do. There's a famous stochastic parrots paper from Emily Bender and Tim Nickabrew and Margaret Mitchell that led to a lot of controversy inside of Google, led to them leaving. Did you read that paper and think, okay, this is a correct, like LLMs are going to lie to people. And Google will be responsible for that. And how do you think about that now with all of the scrutiny? I think um, the large language models, and and this is one, I think this is uh, one reason that Google has been very responsible with this is that we know that they hallucinate and they can be inaccurate. And and that's one of the key areas I think that has to be improved over the next few years is factuality and, and, and grounding and making sure that they, you know, don't spread disinformation, these kinds of things. And that's very much top of mind for us. Uh, and, you know, we have uh, many ideas of how to improve that. And our Sparrow, uh, old DeepMind's um, Sparrow language model was an experiment into, you know, which we published a couple of years ago, was an experiment into just how good can we get factuality and rules adherence in these systems. And turns out we can, you know, maybe make it an order of magnitude better, but it comes sometimes comes at the expense of lucidness or creativity on the part of the language model and therefore usefulness. So it's a bit of like a Pareto frontier where if you improve one dimension, you, you sort of reduce the capability in another dimension. And ideally, we, what we want to do in the next phases and the next generations of systems is combine the best of both worlds, you know, keep the creativity and, and, and lucidness and, and funness of the current systems, but in, improve their factuality and reliability. And we've got a long way to go on that. But I can see things improving and I don't see any theoretical reason why these systems can't get to extremely high levels of accuracy and reliability uh, in the next few years. When you're using the Google search generative experience, do you believe what it says? Uh, I do. I sometimes double check things, especially in the scientific domain where <laughs> I, I've had very funny situations where actually all of these models do this, where you ask them to summarize an area of research, which I think would be super useful if they could do that. Right. And then say, well, what are the key papers I should read? And they come up with very plausible sounding papers with very plausible author lists. Yes. Uh, but then when you go and look into it, it turns out they're just like the most famous people in that field, right? Or the, the titles from, from two different papers combined together. But of course, they're extremely plausible uh, as a collection of words. And I think, you know, there what needs to happen is these systems need to understand that citations and papers and author lists are, 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 is sort of a unitary block rather than a word-by-word prediction, right? So there's there's sort of interesting cases like that where we need to improve. And there's something which is, of course, us as, as wanting to advance the frontiers of science. That's a particularly interesting use case that we would like to improve and fix uh, for our own needs as well. I'd love I love these systems to be able to summarize for me. Here are the here are the top five papers to read about, you know, a particular disease or something like that to just quickly onboard you with uh, in that particular area. I think would be incredibly useful. I will tell you, I clicked a link that was basically a link to 
Google my friend John Gruber, and SGE confidently told me that he pioneered the use of a Mac in newspapers and invented WebKit. And I, <laughs> I don't know where that came from. And is there, a, is there a level, is there a quality level, a truthfulness level that you need to hit before you roll that out to the mass audience? Yeah, we we talk. You know, we think about this all the time, uh, especially at Google, because of uh, the incredibly high standards Google holds itself to on things like search, and you know that we all rely on every day and every moment of every day. Really, we want to kind of get towards that level of reliability. Obviously, we're a long, long, long way away from that at the moment. With with uh, not just us, but anybody with their generative systems. But that's the that's the gold standard. And uh, and actually, things like tool use can come in very handy here where you could, in effect, build these systems so that they fact check themselves, perhaps even using search or, or other uh, reliable uh, sources, cross reference, you know, just like a good researcher would, right? Cross reference your facts. Also, having a better understanding of the world, you know, what are research papers? What entities are they? These kinds of things. Um, so they can, you know, it, these systems need to sort of get a, have a better understanding of the, the, the media they're dealing with. And maybe also give the, the systems the ability to reason uh, and plan because then they could potentially turn that on their own outputs and sort of critique themselves. Uh, and again, this is something we have a lot of experience in, in in games programs that are, you know, they don't just output the first move that you think of in chess or go, right? You actually plan and, and do some, do some search uh, around that and then back up and sometimes they change their minds and, and switch to a better move. And that you could imagine some kind of process like that uh, with words and language as well. There's the concept of model collapse, right? That, that we're going to train LLMs on a bunch of LLM generated data, and that's going to go into a circle. When you talk about cross-referencing facts, and I think about Google, Google going out in the web and trying to cross-reference a bunch of stuff, but maybe all that stuff has been generated by LLMs that sure. were hallucinating in 2023. How do you guard against that? We're working on some pretty cool solutions to that. I think the answer is, uh, and this is an answer to deep fakes as well, is to do some sort of encrypted watermarking, sophisticated watermarking that can't be removed uh, easily or at all, and is probably built into the generative models themselves. So it's part of the generative process. We hope to release that and maybe provide it to third parties as well as a, as a generic solution. But I think that the industry in the field needs those types of solutions where we can mark generated media, uh, be that images, audio, perhaps even text with, you know, some kind of kite mark that says to the user uh, and future AI systems that these were AI generated. Uh, and I think that's a very, very pressing need right now for near term issues uh, with AI like deep fakes and disinformation and so on. But I actually think a solution is uh, on the horizon now. I had Microsoft CTO and EVP of AI, Kevin Scott, on the show a few weeks ago. He said something very similar. I promised him that we would do a one-hour episode on metadata. So you're coming for that one. Okay. And very I suspect that will be our most popular episode. If I know this audience, a full hour on metadata ideas will be our most popular episode ever. Sounds perfect. Well, Demis, thank you so much for coming on Decoder. We, you have to come back soon. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Demis Sabas for taking the time to chat on Decoder today. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. I read all the emails. Or you can hit us up directly on TikTok. Check it out. It's at DecoderPod. It's a lot of fun. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. 
Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Raghun Manavala and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder Music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters, and our executive director of video and audio is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.